Welcome to Manage Expectations. We watch the biggest new movies and shows, giving our non-spoiler expectation of them before we watch them, and then review them afterwards. Lockdown is easing here in the UK, but this podcast is once again recorded from our homes on opposite sides of London. My name is Jude Shardlow, and in my headphones is Tim Kennington. Hello. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Hi. Doing okay. I have bought a heavier kettlebell and <laughs> have my my YouTube exercises have gone up a notch and every fibre of my body hurts. <laughs> I think that's good. Is that a good, you, yeah, that's good. That a good I, thing? I guess that's a good thing. I mean, you're active, yeah. which is a good yeah. thing. Um, I'm just drinking my neat Campari because it's the last thing that was left <laughs> in my bedroom. So I think that's a statement on how well I'm doing. But I will. Hopefully we can all be cheered and buoyed by the content of this podcast. So this week we're uh, talking about a movie that you can only see on Disney Plus from Friday the 12th. It's called Artemis Fowl and it's a science it's a science fantasy adventure film. I'm going to call it that because yeah. I don't know. Cool, yeah. Based on the 2001 novel of the same name by Ewan Colfer and directed by Sir Kenneth Brunner. Um, well done on the pronunciation of Ewan Colfer. You know, That's I mean, very important. I mean, you say well done. I have no reference for that. I, I apologise to anyone <laughs> Irish who's listening to that and going, it's Ewan. Livid. We want to know everything about the man you work for. The man. Oh no, this isn't about the father. This is about the son, Artemis Fowl. Your father is in a complicated profession. For years, he has protected powerful secrets that have kept mankind safe from the dangers of another world. It's time to face your destiny. So for people who may not have tuned in before, the podcast normally takes the format of at least one of us trying to convince the other that something is good because weirdly enough we don't actually have a lot of crossover but this might be one of the rare occasions that neither of us have any familiarity with the source material at all. I've got name recognition okay and um that is <laughs> and basic story recognition but not not a huge amount okay so apologies like bit of a bit of a warning in advance there might be some huge Artemis Fowl fans who were ready to shout into their phones or their laptop but what's the difference between the books and the film so um let me take you back in time to the early 2000s where a young Tim Kennington had his first job working in WH Smith's so this was around the time that Harry Potter was becoming huge. So this is around the time that the movies had just started coming out, which means that the books had had a massive... I think the books actually were just finishing around 2001, 2002. The eighth book in the series came out in 2012. The oh, first, book, okay. the first right, yeah. book came out in 2001. And I remember reading the back and thinking, oh, it sounds quite interesting because what it was was a spy story but set in a fairy world. So the whole idea is that Artemis Fowl was a thief. He had nicked stuff from the fairies and had then, because he had nicked stuff from the fairies, gets embroiled 
Is that embroiled? Is he embroiled? Did he just... He got embroiled. He got embroiled. <laughs> he got mixed up with the wrong painter. Yeah, yeah. so he got entangled with, like, the fairy police, I suppose. Apparently, when he was pitching Artemis Fowl, he described the first book as um, Die Hard with Fairies. Yeah, that makes me... That makes my soul cringe. But at the same time, like, that... I think that sounds really cool. So the actual plot of the first book, there are eight books. So the plot of the first book um, is this uh, 12-year-old criminal mastermind who he tends to hide his emotions. So like you said, like he's, he's not going to be like an all-out Disney hero. He's going to be someone who's a little bit of an anti-hero. He discovers a fairy called Holly Shaw who he kidnaps and ransoms um, with the help of his bodyguard, uh, Demovi Butler, and his sister, Juliet Butler. Basically, the reconnaissance task force of the Lower Elements Police, Lepra, Recon, Leb, Recon. Fairy nice. police aren't having any of this. They try to get the fairy back. So they send a criminal dwarf called Malt Duggams uh, after him. And Artemis at the end has to release Holly and restores the foul family to some kind of fortune at the end of it. So it is like a little bit of a morality tale. At least of what they've done with this film is to flip it on its head. So he's a bit more of an aspirational character. And it turns out the fairies are coming after him rather than him being the person who did anything wrong in the first place. You know, you can look at kind of some of the more roguish gallery of of heroes in Disney films, and they're still kind of good. Like Jack Sparrow, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Just from understanding a little bit about the story and having watched the trailer, what is your expectation of the movie? I love magical realism. I really love the idea of the overlap between the mundanity of the real world and then something fantastical happening. This is not going to be magical realism at all. The kid is too much of a millionaire superhero anyway that he would be a fantastical element in himself. And then it's going to go into this fantasy world. And I feel it's going to be really bells and whistly. I, I don't know if it's just the the fact that it's got Judy Dench in it, but my immediate thought was the Chronicles of Riddick too much and too flamboyant and too big and it's like pair it all down pair it all down and have fantastic elements in it obviously this movie is dealing with things like grief like maybe there's some like loss of parents in there or like him having a disconnect with his parents or like actual themes that are in something like pan's labyrinth too and it just like the the big gulf between this trailer and a well-executed movie like that you're like one of the ways that I've viewed it all is the the great Tim Burton filmography that there was a tipping point in Tim Burton's fantasy films where they stopped being about a weird person who struggles to fit into the real world and they started becoming about a normal person who is suddenly pushed into a fantastical world and that exact point was Alice in Wonderland then after that you start getting things like Miss Peregrine School for Peculiar Children um, and films like that when it's suddenly everything's weird apart from the protagonist it works so much better to have the slow drip of weird I think visually I was really discombobulated by it. Visually close to something like Men in Black, but at the same time being like Iron Man 3 and like the Dark Tower, a bit of Batman thrown in there, some like Mm -hmm. John Carter. You didn't really know whether it was sort of like historically magical or whether it was supposed to be very futuristic and that clash of culture. Yeah, I didn't... You know, maybe this is just lockdown and me being really cynical and getting to a, like a bad place emotionally, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a two in my expectation. I'm, gonna, I'm giving it a two in my expectations as well. We're going in low. I, 
I'm going in low. I feel that Kenneth Branagh might not make, be able to make a one-star film. <laughs> so I have like three or four big red flags going for this film. Right, okay, that justify the two, but you just mentioned the first one. So the first oh. huge, huge red flag is Kenneth Branagh as the director. I'm all for Peter's friends. I'm all for like the Shakespeare adaptations in the 90s. Mm. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was the first horror movie that I ever saw. But I think there has been some choices <laughs> in the past <laughs> 20 years. Cinderella, Thor... Murder on the Orient Express. I think he really struggles with like the dr- combining the dramatic points with these big action set pieces, and I worry that this film is just going to be completely swamped. That's a very valid point. My second one is that Judy Dench plays the curmudgeonly Commander Root. She's great at playing frosty leader characters because we've all seen the James Bond movies where she plays M and she's really great in them. And I know you're going to disagree with this, but I think Cats has made me really question her existence as an actor now. And the words featuring Dame Judy Dench as dot dot dot. Because there's one shot of her in the trailer where she's driving this like Edge of Tomorrow style like pod towards the cliff or something and then just in my mind I've just I've got literally her in like full CGI cats thing in my head but it's because of that that like she's just drowned in you know this horrible sci-fi spectacle and by sci-fi spectacle I am referring to cats (laughs) see for me it was I was more worried about Chronicles of Riddick because she's in Chronicles of Riddick lots of golden brass and Yeah, um, just leave, just and leave her alone. I will defend cats forever. <laughs> really, Jim? Oh, I'll defend, defend cats. cats forever. We've still got to do the episode where we just talk about, where we get drunk and talk about cats. Maybe we should Yeah, do that. but I want to do that live in person. There's definitely something else hanging over this film, which is I think that there's been a lot of crap adaptations of successful fantasy book series mm-hmm. for every harry potter and hunger games there's been uh the line the witch of the wardrobe the maze runner percy jackson the olympians percy jackson sea of monsters so like even the wide gulf between the film and the tv adaptations of um what's it called uh his dark materials divergent as well the final red flag that i had was production issues it got optioned by miramax in 2000 and then it had went through loads of directors and screenwriters in 2010 negotiations still going on with miramax and Harvey weinstein then the merger with disney's announced 2013 kenneth branagh comes on in 2015 and then it's shot but then in 2019 disney acquires fox so suddenly they like with loads to push out, they just decide to put it back to March 2020. Then the critics hate the trailer, and then COVID happens, so it's pushed Disney Plus anyway. It just thinks like this this film's a bit cursed. If you look at what Disney are doing, and if you look at Black Widow and Mulan, they're getting pushed back. And Bob Bob Iger has specifically said that Disney's tentpole films will have cinematic releases, and it's just very interesting to see that this, which could be the start of a whole new franchise could be the start of a whole new uh, a new ip for disney's cinematic releases it just got pushed back pushed back pushed back pushed back whatever happened it was always the one being replaced by something else it doesn't feel like a tactical move like trolls was because we're in the middle of term it's not about cashing in on that school holiday market it just feels like disney are burying this film it's a New Mutants, isn't it? X-Men New Mutants film has been pushed back for, I think, 150 years now. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, thinking of their hundred and fifty first year next year. Yeah. Do you know what? I think it might be worse than a two. I oh think it might be a one. But you asked me to go buy the trailer and buy the trailer. I think it's a two. What I'm hoping is that it is crap and enjoyable, <laughs> or at the very least. You know, cat like cats. <laughs> That's all we can hope for in lockdown. Is it something? Or at the very least, enjoyable. At the very least, fine. <laughs> as long like, as it doesn't morally offend you, well, and as long as it as, doesn't cause you any physical pain. Look, <laughs> I am in a situation where I am legitimately housebound, and my working hours have gone down to. Five and a half hours a week. <laughs> so I will watch pretty much anything. And as long as it like entertains me in passing, I am all right. But if I get into a situation where I watch that and go, I could have spent those two hours playing Animal Crossing, <laughs> then I'll be angry. Then okay. bugs aren't going to catch themselves. <laughs> and and on, on that note, I think, are we going to hop a couple of days into the future? Yeah, we'll hop a couple of days into the future. whether this was actually better than you spending two hours playing Animal Crossing. Okay, his <laughs> hopping cool. future sounds... Right, we're now a couple of days in the future. It's a gloriously sunny Saturday morning. And um, and Tim, you watched Artemis Fowl, what, a couple of days ago? Uh, I watched Artemis Fowl um, the morning it came out. So I watched it, uh, yeah. It's funny about this week, right, that uh, this film actually has a bit of, like, accidental awkward context to it. Obviously, this week is part of, like, the Black Lives Matter movement. The UK started questioning sort of emblems of its colonial past, like statues mm. and artefacts. And it's therefore quite awkward that this film comes out, which forces us to sympathise with a mysterious collector who's take, you know, he's, he's been involved in the rehoming of the Book of Kells, the Rosetta Stone. And sort of, it like, that context of repatriated objects I found quite awkward. It's a very colonial attitude, isn't it? Uh, this will be safer with me. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to take it. <laughs> yeah. There's just one very important thing I have to do. Authorities launched a worldwide manhunt for the famous collector. He is suspected to have been behind some of the biggest robberies ever. Dad. What was your kind of like visual impressions of the film? I think there's some interesting things in there. I don't think the problems are the visuals. I'm going to say that actually for most of it, looks pretty, but but I would say quite generic. Well, there's a bit in the trailer, isn't there, where, where you know, Artemis discovers um, almost like the, the basement in his house where his dad's been you know, collecting all these things. There's actually some nice production design and some nice visuals in that. The close-up of text in books and, yeah. um, you know, all of the uh, drawers that he has to pull out and stuff. Like, I thought actually the production design in this film was really good for every element of this film that's somehow unmemorable visually. Maybe that also goes with the plot. What did you think of the the story of the film and the narrative of the film? I mean, it's really bad, is what I think about <laughs> it. Um, I'll do a quick overview. There is a thing and there are some people. Now, I wish I could give you more information, but that is literally all I know. There's a thing <laughs> and there are some people and the people want the thing. People should not have the thing. But also, <laughs> the thing has gone missing. 
Uh, now, I've no idea what the thing does. It's the, ac- the <laughs> Aculus. It is never made clear what it is. In fact, it takes 50 minutes into the film because <laughs> I timed it. 55 minutes into the film before they say it's the most powerful artifact in fairy. We still don't know why or what it does, <laughs> but we know it's the most powerful. So basically, that has gone missing. Um, some people are after it. We never find out who those people are or what their connection is or anything. The fairy police want to find it. Pe- the bad people kidnap Artemis Fowl's father in order to get it. And therefore, Artemis Fowl goes on a big quest in order to get the MacGuffin in order to rescue his father. I mean, it's a children's film, fine. It has to be simplistic in some way. But I think you and I both had the same frustration with this. I got I got a phone message just on WhatsApp from Tim last night going, I hope you like exposition. I, I stopped counting, but at the very least, the first quarter of an hour is solid exposition. By which I mean large chunks of it are Josh Gad looking to camera, telling you a story weirdly considering that there are some quite visually impressive moments later on it's one of the least cinematic things i've ever watched like for the first quarter of this film you may as well be listening to the audiobook and also a lot of the stuff that is said is never backed up so you've got no evidence it's it's a classic example of show don't tell and this person is the greatest fighter in the land. You never see him fight. Um, like, you just <laughs> you just have to know. Scared, Artemis? I prefer scared to dead. Artemis Fowl doesn't come off as a cool, aspirational figure. He doesn't do much in this film, apart Ooh. from things happen, and then it will cut to him going, huh, I knew that would happen. I planned it that way. He is supposed to be the, the great puppet master pulling all the strings but what it means is that he's incredibly detached from everything that happens we have to find some kind of characterization there or some way of sympathizing or at least enjoying his on-screen presence but what happens is that we have conversations where between him and his teacher between him and his dad where there is also exposition and no um like meaningful emotional dialogue we're having exposition within a layer of exposition anyway it's like what did you think that the role of the narrator should have just been completely cut out completely cut josh gad plays a character called mulch diggums he is a very large dwarf which is quite funny i think that is a funny conceit i assume it's a conceit from the book when he's sort of introduced into the narrative rather than being a narrator i just assumed he was a human who uh, thought he was a dwarf, but it turns out he actually is a dwarf. He has all the characteristics and special abilities and magical powers of, of a dwarf. He's just human size. So my problem with him is that the film is set up as a conceit that um, Mulch Diggums has been captured by some kind of agency. It's never made clear whether it is like a fairy agency or a government agency who, for whatever reason is looking for Artemis Fowl. And then he tells the story of the film. But he tells the story in a film in such a weird way that you immediately, like for me, I just immediately started going, hang on, is he talking to the agents about this? Because he'll be like, what you see here is Fowl Castle where Artemis Fowl lives. I was like, they can't see it. They're not watching the film. (laughs) Like, are you narrating a film or are you telling a story? I feel that the majority of that first 20 minutes could have been told 
through flashbacks or through character scenes. So we've already addressed basically that this is a bit of a directorial and scripting mess just because of the layers of exposition, the the positioning of the narrator, etc. But I think one of the biggest problems is that you're constantly surprised by a barrage of activity or new characters. You don't have the chance to settle on like literally what are the traumatic points of the story he suddenly like has that bruce wayne moment of thinking that he's lost both of his parents he finds out about it on the news that his dad is you know has been uh, involved in some kind of accident and then he gets the phone call oh no wait he's actually been uh you know kidnapped everything works totally smoothly totally to plan in in a way where he'll be told a piece of information and then go, oh, that's perfect, because that's the piece of information that I need for this next thing. He was an okay actor. He comes from, like, an acting dynasty, doesn't he? It's a real shame that Juliet Butler, um, Demovu Butler, and um, Artemis Fowl, they are three characters who I think get completely swallowed in this film. That there's a lot of kind of character exposition of, um, you know, Judy Dench's character, like the leader of Leprechaun, there's Holly Short and a bit of her backstory. And we actually see both of those characters go on more of, like, a personal journey in the film. I thought Lara McDonnell, who plays Holly Shaw, was quite good. I thought she was really, really charming um, and just had like a, a niceness to her that I thought kind of elevated her seat. Oh, Judy Dench, though. I found Judy Dench baffling. So I, <laughs> Judy Dench and the decisions made by Judy Dench and Josh Gad caused me to write in capital le- letters, what is going on with everyone's voices? Everyone is, yeah. everyone was he has made Irish? the weird Yes, so the fairy was world he an is Irish. Irish. Dwarf? The fairy world is Irish. Josh Gad is doing like some kind of an gruff American, American voice. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really weird considering it's it's Josh Gad. It's yeah. Like... Jo- Josh Gad has one brilliant scene which is I think one moment like a tiny moment where he is not bogged down with the script I'm really intrigued to know whether it was his idea or whether it was in the script it is so different from everything else and it is a moment where he's in a prison cell listening to Foreigner on a on a Walkman being stared at angrily by a bunch of goblins I thought Colin Farrell as well. He's an actor who I think is a good actor. Like he was very, very funny in, in, in Bruges. We know that he could do comedy. We know he could do like action roles. But his role reminded me so much of Dominic West in the 2018 Tomb Raider. Like literally absolutely, to the point where absolutely. there was the same scenes playing out, like when Artemis has to go and discover you know, his, his secret code. His role in that film is celebrity cameo. Yeah, exactly. Like it's... it's, it's... <laughs> high status actor to play this role but like like everything there is no evidence of him being a a good father there's a bit where they sit down and discuss some fairy lore and then you get a voiceover that goes Artemis Fowl Sr. may have been many things, but he was an excellent father. And Artemis Fowl Jr. idolised him. I'm like, great, can we see that? Can we see that? <laughs> can we, we, see can that? we see some of that? Yeah. I'd like to be seen. I'd like to see that in the film, which is a, a visual uh, visual medium. But we are not alone in this. Mulch Diggums. Just a talented giant dwarf. And I'm Holly Short, your ally on the other side. <laughs> It's real. All right, save my father, save the world. Whole team ready, tell him we are dead. It did get a little bit Men in Black, 
obviously, but I don't think at any point it got Die Hard with Fairies. The idea is, I think, it's Die Hard with Fairies and Artemis Fowl is Gruber. That's sort of how it is. Like, um, and it's a shame because the all the interviews, I've done a little bit of reading up on it sort of since the first half of this podcast all the interviews are like this is a st- this this is the story of a bond villain before he becomes the bond villain like and i'm like i'd love to see that i would love to have seen artemis Fowl being the bad guy i mm. found that the fight sequences were okay they were a, 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 a bit uninventive Everything is over-explained, but anytime you need to know what a thing does or how a thing works, it's never actually clearly explained. And um, the the fight sequence is a really good example of this because it introduces all this fairy tech or fairy magic, and you never really understand what it does or how it works or whether that is a threat. Isn't that funny, though, that this one of the rare episodes of this podcast where we all of the exact issues that we were afraid of going into watching the movie have actually been really knocked on really knocked yeah, on the head so absolutely. we so like we were worried about Kenneth Branagh's direction because of his previous inability to balance dramatic moments with high octane action sequences you don't really feel anything in them and you don't really like there's no sense of real peril there is some other shadowy figure. And this, for me, I found one of the worst bits in it. I think it really explains how you can't relate anything. And that is the part of Briar Cudgeon, played by Josh Maguire. And Briar Cudgeon seems to be some kind of government official within the world of fairy, who, for some reason, gets blackmailed by a shadowy bad guy figure... We've never yeah. met him before the blackmail scene. So we've got no idea what he has done to earn blackmail. We've got no idea who this shadowy figure is. And then he sort of becomes, not the villain, because the villain is the shadowy figure, but he becomes mm. the antagonist. And literally all he does, I don't know if he had a larger part and it then got written out, he just comes up to Judy Dench occasion and goes, well, I disagree with you. Yeah. He's every bureaucrat on the Death Star, isn't he? Yeah. He's everybody who's standing there sort of like making making the decisions and pointing things out, but actually, you know, there is a is a darker power behind him. But he you don't really doesn't care do about anything. He has no... Yeah. There's no point where he becomes the bad guy and, like, he doesn't overthrow Judy Dench. He doesn't actually do anything. I assumed... I feel like this is the opposite of a spoiler, but I assumed that at some point in the film, the shadowy figure was going to reveal, lift off their cloak, and <gasps> it is X, Y, and Z. Um, except we hadn't met enough characters for that to happen. So I feel like this is not a spoiler to say that there's no twist. <laughs> um, yeah, this is an origin story, isn't it? So we're, we're, you know, we're set up to think the villain is coming back, and that this is, you know, they're now they're pissed off, they're going to come back, you know, die hard too. But we don't know their motivation, we don't know why they wanted to steal this thing. It's the first Avengers film if Loki had also been a completely one-dimensional character that you knew nothing about. And that one completely one-dimensional character that you knew nothing about occasionally had to go and report back to another one-dimensional character that you knew nothing about. Like, mm. that's what it is. Again, like, it's so maddening to me. Like, I watched this film about this time yesterday mm. and it is a fog to me. It's a fog. Like, I'm sitting there going, like, at the end... They're all kind of friends. 
How yeah. did that, how did that happen? I can't remember how like <laughs> Artemis Fowl is now friends with the fairies at the end, and I can't remember what <laughs> happened there. It's it's not a good sign for a movie which is probably I think because it's on Disney Plus aimed at children for it to be that narratively confusing. Artemis Fowl as a character is supposed to be um, twelve. So I would assume, I normally find that in these kind of situations, you want to age it down a little bit because you want the protagonist to be an, an aspirational character. So we're probably looking at like nine, ten year olds. And nine, yeah. ten year olds are smart enough to get complex plots. But I feel that this plot is baffling. If that tangential stuff was being done in order to world build, to like do a bit of fan service, right? Like for the older fans who would be watching it, who just want to see all of their beloved stuff in the books represented on screen. It didn't even do that. So I'm just, I'm confused about why they did all of that sort of tangential world building mm. stuff if, they, if it wasn't even, you know, faithful to the books. When I think about this movie, I think it's on Disney Plus. Would I seek this movie out if I didn't have a Disney Plus account? Like, would I borrow my friend's Disney Plus account? Would I try and find some other means of watching it? That kind of longevity of the film, of it surviving, you know, like a, a lockdown watch on Disney Plus, I really don't think it bodes well for it. Yeah, my question for you is, would this film have benefited or suffered from being at the cinema? Do you think it's actually found its medium by being on a home streaming service? Uh, I don't think it would have benefited critically from being in the cinema. So I don't think that the problems of the film were being locked in and being focused on the plot and, and on the characters. I think it would have just benefited from, you know, it's it's a Disney property and there are lots of characters in it that children could identify with. So obviously there'll be a lot of, you know, the merch opportunities. If they had put it in cinemas and put a lot of weight behind it, it could have done well, but I don't think it would have done well critically. Um, just one last little moment that uh, it's another Josh Gad moment that doesn't really fit in with the rest of the film. But how do you feel with the uh, rather disturbing scene of body horror that appears two thirds <laughs> of the way through the film? I found it quite upsetting. Yeah, I d that again really made me question like what the audience is for this movie. Who do you think you are? I'm the next criminal mastermind. You can just see the cogs turning with them planning future movies. And for something like the end of Sonic, that would work because Sonic was good and it also did really well and it was popular in the cinemas. But I just, I really think that this is one that will have to play out on Disney Plus if they do I, any future movies. I think that this is a film that has been buried on Disney Plus and that they have no intentions of doing a sequel. I mean, apart from the fact that it appeared as the featured thing yesterday on the top of Disney Plus. There hasn't been a lot of fanfare for it. I haven't seen a lot of advertising about it. So taking everything into account of your, you know, we have literally trash talked this movie for quite some time. On yeah. This, like in this in this section of the podcast, I mean, it's not boding well, is it? Do you would if you have to give it a mark out of five? <sighs> you went in low. I went in low, and I went in with say, a two you went star. In with two, I'm, yeah. I'm torn. I think. It really saddens me to do this. 
I think it's a one star film. <laughs> I, no. Yeah. I don't. Oh uh, no. I think it's a two. I think it's a two. I'm sitting again thinking about how much I be. savaged it. I might. Yeah. I think it's a two as well. I was just thinking about how much I savaged it. I, I'm, it's a low two though. It is not. It yeah. is not a two that is close to being a three. It's a let down adaptation in a similar way to something like mortal engines was but i don't so i would give it a low two if you give something one star it either has to be so um visually repugnant (laughs) or you object to it either morally or physically or it has to be something which is so crap but has like the comedic value of giving something a one star so for example when can when cats you know got all of those one star reviews or no star reviews that almost made people want to see it more because it became a long-running joke okay You've won me over. Yeah. It is a, uh, it's a, <laughs> it's it's creeping its way into a two star, but that is mainly because of Judy Dench and Josh Gad. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like the the nearest correlation for this, for good, is Men in Black. And if you want to watch a good yeah. film in which people wear sunglasses and black suits and have to deal with things that you shouldn't have seen go and watch men in black yeah okay i'm gonna go and watch men in black then cool Cool. So we want to hear from you. Are you interested in watching Artemis Fowl? Um, do you approve? After our glowing <laughs> <No>. praise. <laughs> do you approve of drinking meat campari? Please let us know in the comments on Google Podcasts or Twitter at Manage Expect. We really appreciate your feedback. And thank you. We're going to be back with something else soon. Perfect. We don't know what it is yet, yeah. but it'll be soon. Every time, every time that's how we end, we'll be back with something else. Something. Bye. Bye. <laughs>